Thank you, Tim. If uh, you're visiting with us this morning, I'm not the lead pastor here. Our lead pastor, in his infinite wisdom, has thought, I'm going to be in Hawaii and ask one of the staff pastors to preach on Christian suffering. So just so you know where Mel is at today and what I get to preach on this morning, it's going to be great. He's suffering with a sunburn. A sunburn, okay. Well, you'll have to shake his hand or hit him on the back really hard next week or whatever. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for this church family. Thank you that we get to celebrate with the Andersons of 65 years of marriage. I know the Busbys celebrated 40 40 years of marriage yesterday. Thank you that we are a family and that we work together to see you glorified throughout. And on a day like today where we talk about suffering for the sake of the gospel, that we can be an encouragement to one another, a support to one another. We can offer words of hope when things seem a little bit difficult. So God, may we see you more clearly as we talk about suffering. May we understand you more deeply as we think about those who have suffered for us. And while none of us look forward to suffering personally, may we be prepared for it if it does come. Lord Jesus, may my words fall down so that your words would be lifted up and that you would speak to each and every one of us the exact words that we need to hear from you this morning. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. I'm a father of young children. I have three kids, four and under. So bedtime routine is an event at our house. And part of the bedtime routine is that I cuddle up with my two little boys and I read them uh, their Bible story for that given night. And this particular story, Daniel in the lion's den, is one that is only in one of our children's Bibles, so our kids aren't terribly familiar with it which made it exciting for me as a parent to see what they would receive the first time they heard this story. If you're not familiar with it, here's the the background to it. Daniel is a Jewish exile who has been captured by a Babylonian army. While most of the slaves, most of the Jews are put to hard labor, the most brilliant, the most insightful, the most intelligent of the Jews are put to work in the political sphere. That way they're indoctrinated with what the Babylonians teach and they can help to see that Babylonian empire continue to grow. While the natives to Babylon might not be excited about having Jewish exiles serve among them, they certainly enjoy being the strongest and greatest empire in the ancient Near East. The problem, according to many of the natives, was that Daniel was becoming a little bit too successful and eventually found himself as the king's most trusted advisor. The other counselors wanted that role for themselves, so they conspired to do whatever they could to get Daniel out of that seat and replace it with one of themselves. And so they looked at Daniel, and the more they studied him, and the more they looked at him, they realized, this is a man of incredible integrity. We can't find anything wrong with him, unless it's with the God he worships. Back to the drawing board they want, and they recognized that if they were to get rid of Daniel... The one way to do that would be to ask the entire nation to pray to the king. Now, this might seem a little bit strange to our North American ears, but in the ancient Near East, the kings thought of themselves as deities, sent by the gods, perhaps even gods themselves, that people should come and worship, should come and listen to. So it wasn't difficult to convince the king of the day that everybody should bow down and worship you for a period of time. He thought this a great idea. Now, Daniel is a faithful servant to the king of Babylon, but his first love and devotion was to serve God and God alone. So as was his custom, Daniel went up to his room and he prayed to God. At that time, they come barging in 
and arrest him for not praying to the king. His punishment being thrown into a den of ravenous lions. At this point, I paused and I looked at my four-year-old snuggled close to me without a worry in the world. Loving parents, a nice little home, toys scattered across his room. And I said to him, Beckham, what do you think is going to happen? And in typical little boy response, he goes, they're going to eat him. Roar! But then he paused and he looked at me and I was so proud of his insightful question. Why did he do that, Daddy? Why did he do that? Why would Daniel openly worship God, knowing full well that when he's going to be caught, he's going to be thrown to ravenous lions? Most of us in this room don't have to worry about death and imprisonment for the sake of the gospel. But if you're paying close attention to what's happening in the political sphere, certainly down south in California, that might not be terribly far away. And while our suffering may not be imprisonment or death at this time, that doesn't make our suffering any less real. How many of us, for the sake of the gospel, have lost close friends? Maybe they want nothing to do with you after your acceptance of Jesus and they think you crazy for believing what you do. Maybe you saw destructive patterns in your friend's life and you thought enough's enough, no one else is saying anything. I want to talk to my friend about what he or she is doing. And lovingly sharing that thought with them, they said, I don't want to have anything to do with you. Maybe in your zealousness for the gospel, you thought, I'm just going to tell everybody about Jesus and you went about it wrong. And people think, "Uh, you're not invited to my parties anymore. How many of you in this room have received a financial setback because of your faith? You were passed over for a promotion at work because of your belief in Jesus. Maybe you came from another country that persecuted Christians and you were a professional there and you started a few rungs lower here. Many of you sitting in these pews might think, I'm giving a lot of money every week or once a month. It's a financial setback even to be a follower of Jesus. There's other suffering besides death and imprisonment, and that makes them no less real. Calendars might change. Our priorities might change. Our lifestyle might change. A myriad of other elements of your life. Every now and then, it's good to remember the lions. There will be suffering for the sake of the gospel. But because of the love of Jesus, it makes it all worthwhile. Perhaps you're familiar with the quote from the late missionary Jim Elliott. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Certainly this quote is about money, but it's all about more than that. When we work with eternity in mind, when we work together for tomorrow, we're reminded that this life is but a twinkling of the eye compared to eternity with God. We're currently working through the book of 2 Timothy. If you have your Bibles or your devices with you, please open that up. If you're not familiar with the Bible, there's uh, Bibles in the pew racks in front of you. If you don't own one, that's our gift to you this morning. Um, Bibles can be a little bit confusing. Thankfully, there's a table of contents. Uh, You can find 2 Timothy, which is a book in the New Testament. The big numbers are the chapter numbers. The small numbers are the verse numbers. And we're in 2 Timothy chapter 2, starting in verse 8. As you open your Bibles, as you open your devices, a brief summary of what we've covered so far. Pastor Mel spent the first two weeks of 2 Timothy in the book of chapter 1, and he talked to us about faithfulness of the gospel, specifically what it means to be focusing on the life that Jesus has to offer. Personally, I so appreciated Mel's breakdown of the three different understandings of the word life. 
we have the idea that it is bios. A life is quantity. How much can we get? That is life and that is the life that I want. Another definition, another word for life is psyche. A life is quality. How well can life get? But the life that the Apostle Paul mentions when writing to Timothy is the life that we understand as Zoe. A life is quintessence and life to the full. In Jesus, God is offering us the fullness of life. Last week, we looked at the first few verses of chapter two and we talked about how nothing worthwhile ever comes easy. In experiencing the fullness of Jesus, there's going to be some growing pains. Today, we're going to unpack that even more as we remind ourselves of the lions and what it means to suffer for the sake of the gospel. For those of you who enjoy taking notes, we're going to start off with why. Start with why. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8. Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel. If you enjoy watching TED Talks, they're anywhere from 5 to 20 minute speeches on things that inspire. One particular talk, perhaps one of the best known talks of TED, uh, is called Start With Why. It has over 15 million views on YouTube. As parents, as teachers, as leaders of organizations, it's easy to stand in front of your group and say, okay, kids, here's what we're going to do. We're going to clean all the toilets in the house. Okay, class, it's time to study calculus. Okay, church, this is what our plan is. We are going to renovate the gym into an auditorium that's still able to be used to play basketball in. But as kids, as students... As employees or members of organizations, we sit back and we scratch our head and we go, but, but why? Why are we doing that? And when mom says, because I like a clean house, that doesn't quite cut it. What's the most inspiring speech you've ever heard? What kept you transfixed on that screen in front of you, your computer, your TV, your tablet? The best sermon you've ever heard? What made you listen so intently to every word that was said? Did it start with why? In 1999, Martin Luther King's public address was named the greatest speech in the 20th century. He had a dream about why the civil rights movement was so important. If you're not familiar with what he said in that speech, he started with this, I have a dream that not only would we believe all men are created equal, but we would live it out. I have a dream where previous slaves and slave owners would sit at a table and eat together. I have a dream in which racial injustice would no longer exist. I have a dream in which kids would be judged by their character and not by the color of their skin. I have a dream where black and white children would play together. I have a dream that men and women of all nations would stand for freedom together. I have a dream that the love of God would be revealed across this great nation of ours. Wouldn't you want to be a part of something like that? Our church has a dream that all generations can worship freely and enthusiastically from the heart and share together the vision of resourcing the next generation for Jesus. Our church has a dream that we would be the go-to place of worship for young families in southwest Edmonton, that our building would be so full of children that we couldn't turn around without bumping into them, that everyone would be inviting people to church because of the life change that is taking place here and the fullness of life that is offered through Jesus Christ. 
that everyone would have a meaningful relationship and invite other people to be a part of the group that they are a part of, that we would all work together for tomorrow, seeing the good news of Jesus spread throughout Southwest Edmonton. You excited for the fall? To be a part of something special? The author of 2 Timothy, a man by the name of Paul, is writing to his young protege, and he starts with why. Remember, young pastor. Remember, church. Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel. This is the good news. Why go through Christian suffering? Because of what Jesus has already done for us. In one short sense, we learn not only about the person of Jesus, we also learn about the work of Jesus. But let's start with this person. In being raised from the dead, we are reminded of, David's, uh, of Jesus' divinity. This is no mere man, but he is the very son of God. At the same time that we are reminded of his divinity, we are also reminded of his humanity. He is descended from the greatest king of Israel. At the beginning of Romans, another book written by Paul, Paul shares this same idea but inverts the order and adds a little bit of context. This is Romans chapter 1. Regarding God's son, who as to his human nature was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the son of God by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, we do not merely worship a God who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, unable to understand what it is we go through on a daily basis. We worship a God who is fully man and fully God. He's not just a man who cannot save us from our sins. He is a man who at one point is all divine and all person. We worship a man who is both fully God and fully man and bridges the gap between a holy and perfect God and sinful humanity and makes this relationship possible. Remember Jesus, says the Apostle Paul, who left the throne room of God, never giving up his divinity, but coming to earth, taking on humanity and entering our brokenness so that we might be whole. Remember Jesus. Remember the person. Remember also his work. I love smart writing. I appreciate with an author or an advertising agency has put in hard work so that something can be read in two different ways and both of them make sense. The simple sentence from Paul is absolutely brilliant. Not only does raised from the dead, descended from David, tell about his person, it also tells about his work. In being raised from the dead, Jesus has conquered the grave, the greatest news the world has ever heard. In being a descendant from David, he has established an even greater kingdom than Israel's greatest king. And so Paul is writing the pastor, writing the church, saying, remember Jesus. He has saved you from your sin. In another letter written by Paul, this time to the church in Corinth, he says this, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And not only are you saved from your sin, but you are saved to something beautiful, a glorious, powerful kingdom. In believing God's message, you're invited to the greatest kingdom the world has ever seen. It's a kingdom without borders, a kingdom that can never be defeated, a kingdom with a holy and perfect king. The Apostle Paul is writing to us saying, remember Jesus. When we remember why we're doing what we're doing in this 
in spite of its difficulty, we know that we can suffer. Start with why, but also understand there's a willingness to suffer. The Apostle Paul continues in verses 9 to 10. This is my gospel, for which I am suffering, even to the point of being chained like a criminal. But God's word is not chained. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they too may obtain the salvation that is in Jesus Christ with eternal glory. When Paul says he's suffering for the gospel, this is a type of suffering that most of us in this room have not experienced. This isn't the suffering of a loss of a friendship. This isn't the suffering of a loss of a promotion or the suffering of loss of a few thousand dollars. In the book of Acts, God himself tells a man by the name of Ananias, this is in Acts 9 verse 16, I will show Paul how much he must suffer for my name. God wasn't kidding. Paul explains the suffering he's gone through for the sake of the gospel at the end of his second letter to the church in Corinth. I don't have PowerPoint screen behind me. If you want to write it down, it's 2 Corinthians chapter 11, picking up in verse 21. This is what Paul says. What anyone else dares to boast about, I am speaking as a fool, I also dare to boast about. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they Abraham's descendants? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I'm out of my mind to speak like this. I am more. I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death time and time again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own countrymen, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false brothers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked besides everything else. I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak and I do not feel weak? Who is led into sin and I do not inwardly burn? Jumping down to chapter 12, verse 9. But then God said to me, Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast in all, all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power might rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am made strong. To summarize 15 verses, the word of God has brought Paul chains and suffering and imprisonment. But the word of God will never be chained or suffer or imprisoned. A little bit of historical context for this letter. Most people believe that 2 Timothy was written in about 64 to 65 AD, which is during the reign of the Roman Emperor Nero. If you think you have friends who are antagonistic towards Christians, you haven't seen anything. Nero so hated followers of Jesus that he would capture them, wrap them in wax, and light them on fire to light his dinner parties. He had other Christians sewn into animal skins and left to be torn apart by rabid dogs. This man hated followers of Jesus. During his reign in the summer of 64, there was a huge fire that took place in Rome. Most people believed it was actually set by Nero himself. 
in hopes to raise part of the city so that he could build a beautiful palace. As people started being upset with him for allowing this to take place, he parlayed that into attack on Christians, saying, Christians have lit our, fire, our city on fire. And so the hatred towards Christians grew into further persecution, further imprisonment, and further murder of those who followed Jesus. A little bit of a side note, the Apostle Peter also wrote his books during this time, and it was under Nero's reign in which he said, obey those who are in authority over you. Whether or not it was this persecution that landed Paul in prison, we can't say. But amidst horrible anti-Christian sentiment, the gospel continued to spread. In the face of people hating Christians, men and women were accepting Jesus as Savior. Churches were growing, and the Apostle Paul continued to write to pastors and churches alike, telling them, remember Jesus. As for Paul, there's nothing you can do to stop him from spreading the gospel. I've mentioned this before in a sermon here at Ellerslie, and I'll say it again. Philippians 1, verse 21 to 22, the Apostle Paul writes this, For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm going to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. To say it in a completely different way. You're going to let me go about sharing the gospel? Praise God, people are going to come to faith in Jesus wherever I go. You're going to beat me for sharing the gospel? Praise God, Jesus was beaten for the gospel. It was the best thing that happened to Christianity. You want to imprison me? That's okay too. Because I'm going to tell jailers and my fellow inmates about the greatness of Jesus. You're going to put me into solitary confinement? I'll get to pray all day and I'll continue to write to churches and pastors. You're going to kill me? I'm fine with that. Because then I get to enjoy the sweet embrace of Jesus my Savior. Philip Towner puts it this way, the cost of freedom may be a loss of freedom. But this type of suffering didn't just happen 2,000 years ago. It continues to happen today. A book that gained some following a little while ago, uh, certainly among missionaries and mission movements, is called The Heavenly Man. It's a story that Brother Young wrote about, and this is an excerpt from it. Pardon me, an excerpt of a review. Despite a life of poverty in China, Brother Young has since spoken to thousands internationally with the gospel message. He's seen as a rebel among some Chinese for not joining in the government-controlled Christian organization. He was imprisoned and tortured by the government authorities. His book reports that he became a highly wanted man across sev several provinces. He was finally arrested and sentenced to many years in prison. However, Yun continued his ministry while in prison with more miraculous results. As a result, many prisoners and even some prison officials became born-again Christians. While he gained increasing favor from some officials, he also became a target of increased persecution by others. He was repeatedly beaten and became severely malnourished. But through his suffering for the gospel, thousands of people have come to faith in Jesus Christ. Let's hop across the pond and bring it even closer to home. There are moments that I turn on Sports Center or listen to my favorite sports podcast, and I'll listen to a NFL coach talk about his regular week and I am amazed at the sacrifice that he gives up. One particular coach used to coach the NFL New York Jets said that he would kiss his two baby girls goodnight on Sunday night and would not see them again until Saturday morning. He said for the sake of winning 
I will work and suffer through 14 and 16 hour days so that my team will win. Bill Belichick, arguably the greatest coach in NFL history, after winning the Super Bowl last year, has a quote that's now become famous, no days off. His quarterback, Tom Brady, was in a documentary just a few months ago, and I'm paraphrasing him saying this, I can watch film for eight, for 10, for 12 hours a day. I know defenses better than they know themselves. When a defensive back uh, makes a fist, I know that means he's either going to blitz me or drop back into coverage. I will outwork everybody because I want to win. I recognize millions of dollars are at stake. But I hear stories like that and think, I'm working with people, with many of you, with my neighbors, telling them about Jesus, talking about eternity, and I'm thinking, I don't work that hard. What am I willing to suffer for the sake of the gospel? Friends, I'm not asking for 80-hour work weeks, but I am asking this question. What will you suffer for the sake of the gospel? Start with why. A willingness to suffer. The final part of our outline, the common Christian experience. This is verses 11 to 13. Here is a trustworthy saying, Timothy. If we died with him, we will live with him. If we endure, we will also reign. If we disown him, he will disown us. If we are faithless, he will remain faithful, for he cannot disown himself. The phrase here is a trustworthy saying can only be found in the pastoral epistles, these two letters to Timothy and another letter to Titus. It's the equivalent of the Apostle Paul saying to Timothy, you can take this to the bank. How many of us have leaned on a trusted mentor? At school, at work, at church, and we just need someone to bolster us with those great words of encouragement, that unfaltering engagement, Those of you who are followers of Jesus Christ, here is a trustworthy saying. Without a shadow of a doubt, we know this to be true. If we die with Jesus, we will live with Jesus. I love being a pastor. There are many aspects of my job that I greatly enjoy. And if you were in the second service last week, you got to see the one that might be the pinnacle. Having the opportunity to be in that baptismal tank and baptize somebody is a great joy to me. And as I I was preparing that 30-second introduction, I had to remind myself and then remind you, baptism is not just a symbol of uniting ourselves with Christ. It is the very practice of uniting ourselves with Christ. Paul, writing to the church in Rome, says this, Don't you know that all of us were baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death? We were there therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too might have a new life. If we have been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly be united with him in his resurrection. It's a death to self. It's easy for us to live our lives with a functional savior. I finished writing my message on Friday morning and Friday before my message I was spending some time in the book of Isaiah and God was writing to um, a group of people saying, do not think that Egypt will come and save you for I will crush Egypt. 
And we read that and go, yeah, don't put your faith in Egypt, put your faith in God. But how often do we put our faith in some sort of functional savior? We put our faith in our bank account saying, there's lots of money there for a rainy day. We put our faith in our job thinking, this is what gives me purpose in life. We put our faith in our children saying, the success of our children will bring me success and happiness and joy. What happens when that's taken away? What happens when our bank account is depleted and we have nothing left? What happens when we fail at work or lose our job? What happens when our success is based on our children and they aren't all that successful? In dying to ourselves, we recognize that Jesus is the true hope that will never disappoint. Though relationships may fail us, Jesus will always be present. Though our bodies might break down, Jesus promises us a new body. Though we might lose our job, Jesus always has good work for us to do. Though our bank accounts might be depleted, Jesus says, wait until heaven. I have riches that you cannot possibly fathom. In the midst of our suffering, Jesus says, I'm offering you life. And if we endure with him, we will reign with him. We may not face the same level of persecution that our Christian brothers and sisters do around the world, but our persecution, our suffering, really does exist. I remember being profoundly marked by a story my youth pastor told while, he was in, while I was in high school. He shared about a story in his previous environment where he was pastoring in Ontario that there were two students who were graduating together from his youth group planning on going away to the same university and since they were friends in a brand new environment, they decided to be roommates. I'm guessing many people in our youth group at this time thought, oh, well, that's a great thing to do. But my pastor had one serious concern. Not only do statistics say that 80% of Christians who graduate from high school will lose their faith four years later, but that one of these two students was academically brilliant and also a devout atheist. The other student was a dedicated Christian, but not the brightest crayon in the box. And so he thought to himself, what's gonna happen come Thanksgiving or Christmas when these two come back? A devout atheist, all through high school, attending a secular university, came home believing in Jesus. And my youth pastor looked at him and said, what happened? And he laughed and he said, every single night I teased my roommate. Why are you reading the Bible? You know that's just a bunch of fairy tales. Why do you believe in that? You can't even answer my difficult questions. Why are you a Christian? And he said, every single night my roommate gave me the same response. I don't know the answers to your questions. One thing I do know, Jesus died for my sins and he rose three days later and I will always believe. This devout atheist came home saying, I was struck by his unwavering belief, and the more I looked into it, the more I believed as well. Revelation 3.21, to him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we disown him, he will disown us. There is a warning and a consequence It's not unusual for people to come into my office and say, Pastor Dave, what happens with eternal security? Once a Christian, always a Christian? I'm not answering that question tonight. When it comes to eternity, I'll tell them, Jesus gives you exactly what you want. Do you want to spend eternity with Jesus? 
Do you believe him to be good and loving and find joy in following his leadership? He will give you exactly what you want and you will spend eternity with him. Are you embarrassed by the life and work of Jesus? Do you deny his existence with your friends? Do you find his teaching laughable? Then you will spend eternity apart from him. In Matthew chapter 10, as Jesus is sending out his 12 disciples, he says to them, whoever acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before men, I will disown him before my Father in heaven. Jesus is not content with simply being fire insurance, a get-out-of-hell-free card. He wants your life, not only when things are going well, but in the midst of suffering. Will you acknowledge Jesus as Lord and King? I can almost hear the question being silently asked, what about Peter? He denied Jesus three times just before his crucifixion. Without a doubt, that is true. Jesus' most outspoken disciple, the one who said, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death, denied his friendship with Jesus three times, 12 hours after making that statement. But look at how our passage ends. If we are faithless, he will remain faithful, for he cannot disown himself. Peter had a temporary failure. But he came back to Jesus. You can read the story in John chapter 21, a powerful picture of repentance, where Jesus came back to Peter and said, do you believe in me? And Peter said, yes, you know I do. There is no doubt in Jesus' mind that Peter regrets what he has done. And after this humiliating episode, Peter goes on to lead the disciples, build the church, write two books of the Bible, and according to history, was crucified upside down because he did not consider himself worthy to die the same death as Jesus. As the servers come forward this morning to distribute both the bread and the cup, I want to remind you of two beautiful pictures of the gospel that we see in this passage. The first picture of the gospel is this. The faithfulness of Jesus is unforgettable comfort to all who suffer for the sake of the gospel. The faithfulness of Jesus is unforgettable comfort for those who suffer for the sake of the gospel. Though we sometimes fall or waver towards our faithfulness towards God, he is always there to forgive us and pick us up every single time. God will always be faithful. No one in this room is faithful every day of their lives, but Jesus is, and that's the beauty of the gospel. In God's sovereignty and his perfect knowledge of all things, he knew that we would fail. He knew that we would sin. He knew that we would miss the mark. He also knew Jesus never would. It's Jesus' faithfulness that provides the very reason that we can be faithful. Because God knows that faithless sinners such as us need a faithful Savior who can bear the load for them. There's also a second picture of the gospel in this passage found in the first verse we looked at this morning. Remember Jesus, raised from the dead, descended from David, this is my gospel. The word remember is a continuous command, meaning he didn't just say it at that time, but it's the idea of continue remembering. It's why here at Ellerslie we practice communion nearly um, every month during, on the first Sunday. The blood of Jesus shed for our sins so that we will be forgiven. 
the body of Jesus broken for us that we will be made whole. The blood of Jesus shed for us that we might receive life and have it to the full. The death of Jesus raised from the grave, saving us from death and bringing us to life. And close with this quote from John Stott. Blessing comes through pain, fruit through toil, life through death, and glory through suffering. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much that in your perfect love you were able to turn your back on your beloved son and that you gave him for us. I thank you for that gift. I'm very grateful today for what you did pain that you went through in turning your back on him and the pain that he went through in giving his body. Thank you for that today. How deep the Father's love for us how vast beyond all measure that he should give his only son to make his red his treasure how great the pain of searing loss the father turns his face away as wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory. Behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is in anything no gifts no power no wisdom but I will boast in Jesus Christ his death and resurrection by shedding 